Well, this should be the easiest two-parter I've ever covered. Because I don't have to cover about half of it. I already covered the cage. I'm not really kidding. I don't plan to cover the cage stuff at all, because why would I? With one notable exception, which I'll bring up in this episode, it has no relevance to this episode's discussion, ironically. This, uh... Wow, this is an interesting situation. Uh... So... Funnily enough, Roddenberry had been shopping around the idea of trying to turn the cage into a full movie. I'm not sure what I think of that idea. I'm not sure how that would work out. And I'm not sure what they would do with it. He was going to add footage. I uh, wouldn't get a hold of Jeffrey Hunter because Jeffrey Hunter wasn't interested and was a little too pricey. But he was still shopping that around. But then, well, if I've, if I've been getting across the implication here, I hope so, because... The creation and the production of Star Trek TOS was um, frenetic, I think is the word I want to use there. There was a whole lot of just, okay, then do this, and then this, and make this, and then this, and then this, and make this. This episode was actually filmed immediately after Court Martial, and uh, Mark Daniels, who had just finished directing that episode, was immediately called in to direct this episode. So, you know, that sounds like fun. Actually, they wanted Robert Butler back. Butler said, nope, I hate Star Trek and I hate all this crap. He really wanted to do other things. I actually already mentioned that in the cage, so that didn't happen. But i, I got to explain this. You're probably wondering, why? Why is it that there was such a push to, to make this episode and to make it a two-parter? So they ran into an issue... If you've paid attention to any of my film ruminations this year, there are several which have had the same problem, one of which I know has come live before this. That's the one on Solo, a Star Wars story. Any time a cinematic production, whether it's television or film, basically stops producing, it's really bad. Now, in this case, it would actually be even worse, because there's only two possibilities. One... Everything just kind of stays paused while they desperately try to get working again, which means they're just burning money sitting there doing nothing. Two, and this is arguably worse for Star Trek, or at least it could have been worse, they just send everyone home. And then when they've got work to do again, they bring them back. By the way, the issue in this case was specifically they were, they were out of scripts, which is just such an insane idea for Star Trek. There's, there's, it's never happened at any other hit point in history that I'm aware of in Star Trek history, because... You know, sometimes they're desperate for scripts, and so they'll take whatever. But they had a bin, metaphorically speaking, of just ideas and spec scripts and all sorts of stuff that they could just pull out and say, let's do this one. No, here they literally had no scripts. They had nothing to work with. And they were like, oh, God, what do we do? And if a TV show, which already is in kind of hot water for many reasons, and has had as many production issues as this one is, and is expensive as this one is, remember... Star Trek and Mission Impossible were both very pricey at the time. Well, that's going to cause problems if you send everyone home. Because they may never be brought back again. Even if they are, that's more time wasted and more money wasted. And they, the people who you sent home, well, they may get attached to other projects and go to work on other things. And you may not be able to bring them back. So, desperate in order to try and prevent this from happening... Roddenberry and Black sat down and tried to figure out what to do. Now, everyone credits Roddenberry for the idea, which I find interesting because Black actually wrote the scripts for the Menagerie, part one and two. 
I don't know if that means Roddenberry did come up with the idea, or they came up with the idea, or he came up with the idea. I don't actually know. And as I discussed very recently with uh, Jesse Gender, I'm going to bring her up again in a minute here. The fact is, there's so much contradictory information in interviews and gaps in knowledge that some of this stuff I can only speculate on. What did end up happening, and we have documented evidence of this one, is Roddenberry completely rewrote the script. Well, let me take that back a few steps. He wrote, he edited the script, and then edited the script, and then edited the script, and then put his own name on it and said, it's just me, and ejected Black from any writer's credit. Black actually, this is why I say we have evidence of this, Black actually issued a grievance to the Writers Guild over this one. The, the grievance was denied, by the way. So, that's fun. <sighs> Let's get to the episode proper. So, What's-Her-Face goes out. And this has bothered me ever since I was a kid. She's just looking up at this guy like, I, I get it. She's looking up for the ship that she can't see, for the people to beam down. It's just, that has always bothered me, even as a kid. Why is she looking up? Anyways, <clears throat> um, we find out very quickly about Christopher Pike and his uh, dilemma. He is debilitated to the point of basically being a vegetable physically, but his mind is apparently fully intact. Now, that's an important point. The episode makes more than once that his mind is fully functional. So that's that's fun. Anyways, um, he's... Him being so devastated is necessary for the construction of the episode. It's a damn shame if you ask me. I think Pike deserved better, especially when we get that Pike show, which is totally still happening, right, guys? Like, that's still the realm of maybe at the point where I'm at, so who knows where it'll be when this episode actually goes live. We also have limitation of him communicating. Now, this one makes a little bit less sense. Given all of the tech and abilities and capacity for communication we have, all we can do for this guy is a binary yes or no. Actually, it's not even that. It's just a beeping. It's just they have then adapted the beeping to a yes or a no. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't tell me there aren't other ways to try and get him to be capable of communicating. But, of course, we know why this is. Just like with the him being debilitated, it is necessary for the construction of the plot. If he has the ability to communicate, the episode doesn't happen. Just like if he's in good health, the episode doesn't happen. This is one of the reasons why I do feel this is a Roddenberry plot. No offense to the man, but I've pointed this out before. When he's good, he's good. But he has a tendency to have a lot of sequences which just don't really make sense. And to say a lot of things which sound like they make sense, but don't when you really process them. Anyways. This is when we find out... Uh, hey! We've got this plan, and I have this great plan. Why is this plan necessary? Okay, spoilers for the second episode. On the off chance you've never seen TOS, this is probably the only thing I could ever say for the history of this show that is a spoiler, okay? But I have to discuss it because it comes up here. Spoilers! They have the ability, the Telosians, to reach out all the way to the planet where Pike is on and create a mental image of the C Commodore at some point or another. I'll talk about that in a second. That's hella range, which is terrifying. But it also makes you wonder, why is the plan even necessary? They could just they could basically just project an image of themselves to Pike and communicate to him saying, hey, what's up? Listen, um, we want to offer you this. Okay. And then they could illusion him to be here and then done. 
Instead, they have to go through this big convoluted plan, which makes less sense the more you think about it. But again, I've, I've already made that complaint. By the way, six days away at high warp. We've got something above warp one now. Actually, I've been paying attention. Unless I missed it, they still haven't said anything above warp one, so... I do like how there's the thing about how Kirk says a computer record could be changed, it could be altered. Remember, this was produced after court-martial. In fact, this is being filmed literally, like, the next couple of days after court-martial. So, <laughs> this, this is actually apropos, and that meaning is completely lost when you look at it from the perspective of release order, where this is completely disconnected from court-martial. It's just funny to think about. Anyways, I do like how Spock goes in, nerve pitches a guy, and then struggles with a guy because we need to have an action sequence, and then he nerve pitches him. There's a lot of little niggles like that in that episode. I'm going to try and skip over most of them. I just had to pay attention to that one because that has always bugged me, even as a kid. <clears throat> I like the construction of the mystery, though. Like I said, Roddenberry's good when he's good, writing-wise. And here, the point is the mystery is not who done it. We know who done it. Spock. It, it's We've known that since the cold open. It's always been Spock. Okay, sure. The question is not who. It's why. What is his motivation for doing all this? And that will not be answered until episode two, which we'll be covering next week. So, Spock has his plan, and there's a degree of logic to it. He wants to go ahead and make sure that no one else is involved. That way, no one else will actually be hit by anything. You know, In, in other words, all the blame's on him. This is basically him trying to logic his way out of a very careful riddle. You know, like your your classic uh, logic puzzle results. You know, get get the lions and the buffalo across the the river. One of those puzzles, right? So he's like, okay, if I do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, everyone will be fine, and I'll be the only one who has to suffer consequences. Thank goodness. This is when we find out two things. First of all, Vulcans can't lie. <laughs> Bullcrap. Excuse me. <laughs> that is an oft-repeated. Uh, ironically, lie, but I'm I'm okay with that because that's a lie in universe. It's propaganda, basically. But the second thing, <laughs> going or contacting Talos Four carries the death penalty. It is the only death penalty remaining for Starfleet. For which we we know Starfleet exists at this point. Federation doesn't. <laughs> but it's the only death penalty is going to Talos Four. Wow. I mean, I get that you want to lock that down, but that's just putting a big blinking siren over it saying, yep, nope, nope, nope. And you can't tell me that's not going to be a huge beacon to lure people there. This is also ignoring the fact that if someone goes there, are you seriously going to execute someone? Can you picture that? Do me a favor. Picture that. Picture a Starfleet personnel picking up a phaser and executing someone for trying to contact Telosaur. Just, Just put it into your mind. Oh, God. Actually, that makes perfect sense. You remember how many times I've been pointing out all the, you know, crazy or evil Starfleet and Federation personnel? Never mind, they'd be totally down for executing their own crew. Anyways. <laughs> Shuttlecraft heads out. What's funny is, by all accounts, this is part of the plan. So, Spock, and, and we do see at least a bit of evidence of this in the fact that Spock already had the tapes necessary and ready in order to be ready for the ship to turn around, grab the shuttlecraft, and come back. So, that is actually part of the plan. This is when I start to think, Spock, I think you have too many moving parts in your plan. 
This is when I'm going to go ahead and spoil another thing about the next episode. Commodore Mendez on the Enterprise is a fake. Now, by logical deduction, we could say at the absolute latest he was a fake as soon as he entered the shuttlecraft. How much further back do you think he was a fake? I don't think they ever say specifically. So, it's just... I mean, I guess we'll find out next week because I haven't watched episode 2 yet. But assuming it doesn't tell us... When do you think they replaced Commodore Mendez with a fake? Oh, by the way, I have to point this out. So Mendez actually has been in Star Trek a couple times. I pointed this out back in Unification over on TNG. He played Senator Pardak. He also did the voice of the Keeper in The Cage and this episode. I'd love to say that that was done deliberately. I don't actually know, but that is hysterical if that was done deliberately. It's hysterical anyways. Um, so, Spock is so wonderfully amiable and honest, and McCoy is completely flummoxed by it. I guess we'll confine you to quarters, I guess? I don't know. I'll go ahead and send him there. So the jig is up. Pike is on the Enterprise, and Kirk is on the Enterprise, and everyone's there. Why don't we just actually openly talk about it at this point? Why doesn't Spock just say, hey, here's what's going on? And, um... Why don't they actually just try to do this? Like, what? why the song and dance? The best answer I came up with was to convince Pike of what they wanted to do with him in episode two. I gotta be real, I don't think Pike needed a lot of convincing. He's living in some, some kind of hell. And remember, mind powers. So even though he will basically have a very unpleasant physical life, he won't experience any of that. He'll be the equivalent of drugged out of his mind by escaping, it, you know, by the ultimate escapism. Now that may sound horrible, but I don't actually mean that as a con uh, condemnation. Because he's living in a kind of hell that they can't repair. His choices at that point are suicide or massive escapism. That's it. There's not a lot of in-between there in his circumstance. This is why him being as damaged as he is is necessary for the purposes of the plot, like I mentioned earlier. Because otherwise, this could be portrayed as, Ugh. Instead, this is a mercy. Not good, per se, but certainly better. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself and talking too much about episode two. It's just, we know the real reason. I mentioned the lack of episodes. They needed to do something. Black, or Roddenberry, or both, came up with this idea. Let's do a clip show. Now, the problem here is clip shows suck for all the reasons that everyone knows. And anybody could tell you the clip show sucks. There are precious few exceptions to clip shows sucking. Uh, Shades of Grey, for example, is not one of those exceptions. It is everything wrong with a typical clip show, as I discussed when we went through that one. Uh, I'd say Farscape is a good exception, if that even counts, because it probably shouldn't. It was intended to be a clip show, and then it stopped being one, which is also what happened here. This was intended to be a clip show, to get a script going so they could get something, but they still needed to film. They still needed to produce, so they had to have the modern story, and so by logical definition, they had to actually make a story, not just reshoot the cage. Thus, the menagerie. This also leads to another very interesting thing. This... <sighs> This pulls the cage into continuity, pulls it into canon. And, I mean, we know that now. Pike is a canon character and is possibly getting his own show, as I referenced earlier. But this was a huge deal back at the time. 
This also is the beginning of continuity in Star Trek. No, really. I'm going to talk here for a second, okay? I, I basically have not, not much else to say about the episode. Let, let's go ahead and save that for last, for those who want to talk about the episode. Um, so we, we watch the cage, and 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 then they have a deadlock. No, you don't. That's why you have three. In fact, there's actually quite a few real-life legislative bodies, both in a corporate sense and a political sense, that have a board of an odd, odd number, so you cannot have a split tie. You know, so that actually... Then the episode ends on what I must call incredibly unnecessary drama. It's there to keep you invested. It's there to be a dun-dun-dun. It does the exact opposite for me. Now, maybe that's because I've already seen episode two or The Cage, but... It's like, Kirk, you're relieved from command. Oh, my God. And we, and you're getting messages from Talos Flower. Oh, my God. And Commodore Mendez, you're taking command. And you can disable the vessel if you must. I'm going to spoil something for you. They're just going to keep watching the cage in Part 2. Despite direct orders from Starfleet Command to disable the vessel if necessary in order to go ahead and stop taking the, the messages. I'm pretty sure that a phaser in a few minutes' time could make sure they don't get those messages if he decided to follow those, those orders, which, of course, he does not. So it's just pointless drama. It's there just to drum up the stakes. It is, in short, a threat of the week. There's also this bit, what, you must watch the rest of the transmission. Why? I mean, we know why. It's because we need the footage from the cage, but that's it. And then, to be continued. Bum, 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 bum. That's a biggie. This is literally Star Trek history. So, I said I'd talk about it. Let's talk about it. If I say Star Trek continuity, what do you think right now? And I would love to hear your answers in this, in, in the comments section down there. No, not those kind... No, no, no! Um, but... <laughs> In all seriousness, I would love to hear, what do you think, first thought, first knee-jerk thought or emotional reaction to Star Trek continuity? I imagine there will be several answers that are like a mess or inconsistent or whatever. And those are totally valid. As I've said before, it's weird being someone who is into continuity as much as I am and still being a fan of something like Star Trek. Here's the really weird, interesting thing. Star Trek tries to maintain continuity and has for decades. How many other franchises can claim that? I'm going to go and spoil it for you. Not a lot. There are quite a few franchises that have been around that long. Most of them either have an absence of continuity, or they have occasional resets where they just hit the reset button and start a new continuity entirely. Looking at you, Star Wars. Although Star Wars could qualify into this in several ways too, but you get the idea of what I'm talking about. Very, very few franchises have maintained the idea of having it all set in one strong, contiguous setting as long as Star Trek has. There are a few. Doctor Who probably outpaces it uh, a little bit. That's kind of debatable, and also they kind of cheat a little with the multiple Doctors thing. But still, that is fully in-universe, and all of the Doctors are canon, so that, that qualifies, right? So, for those of you across the pond, there's another example of what I'm talking about. But keep in mind, while this wasn't super unusual, as many people pointed out to me back in the early TNG stuff, this was still unusual. Especially since basically everyone at NBC's upper executives hated this idea. And near as I can tell, someone must not have. I would love to give you a name. I don't know whom. I can only speculate that someone was on board with the idea. Because 
this would become more of a thing the longer Trek goes on. This is just a result of my research, but it really boils back down to one person, though. Leonard Nimoy. I've actually already talked about this. Nimoy insisted on a continuity for his character. Other things change, events change, but he insisted that Spock be Spock and that Spock grow. He wanted that. He owned that. So that even as writers change and directors change and mandates change and studios change, because Paramount bought Star Trek in the middle of TOS's run, Spock would remain Spock. Now, this is just my supposition and my analysis, but I think Leonard Nimoy is the very beginning of continuity in Star Trek, of canon. Now, let's define that really quick, to, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Canon is what the people currently in charge say is continuity. That's it. That's all. That's the full definition there. And I just want to point that out, because I'm not going to be using the word canon a lot, because it doesn't matter for this discussion. What matters is the continuity. Okay? With me? So the Menagerie pulled from the cage in a moment of total desperation. This is also considered one of the better two-parters of TOS, and it's usually, it, it usually makes the top ten or top fifteen lists, depending on if it's one or two episodes. This episode uh, not only pulled forward from the cage, but also relied heavily on the pre-existing connection between Nimoy and Shatner, that is to say, between Kirk and Spock. If that didn't exist, this wouldn't have the weight it does. There's an entire thing, as the, the credits are showing at the end, where Kirk is just... And while you can presume, if, if this is the first episode of Star Trek you've ever seen, you can presume quite a bit here, it is nevertheless the strength of that buildup of the last 14 episodes which enables that. I've talked about this before, setting continuity, which is something Star Trek's actually very good at. It doesn't maintain some of the details, the warp speeds change, the geography's all over the place. We literally still do not have a canon map of the galaxy. We've got a few dozen fan works. I prefer to use Star Trek Online as my own personal mental map of the galaxy. But we don't have anything official. We don't. Even the timeline is all over the place and doesn't quite line up with things that the rest of the timeline says. There's technologies that's all over the place. There's species that's all over the place. Look what happened to the trail between TNG and Deep Space Nine, for God's sakes. But the ideas and the overall progression of general tech and the characters, those remain consistent. Picard does grow. Cisco develops. Even Janeway, although actually... Tuvok might be a better example, or, or Neelix, actually. But characters grow and change and acknowledge some of the things they have been through in the past in order to then build upon that, even if they don't state it out loud, even if individual episodes never matter again, which aggravates the crap out of me when that happens. You know, Inner Light and TNG, or Real Life and Voyager. Those events are effectively never referenced again directly but they are still a part of those characters, and they are unspoken now part of how the actors are portraying them. So the continuity buildup is there. And all of that boils back down to this episode and that idea of trying to maintain that continuity and trying to ensure that Star Trek all exists within one bubble. There's the books, there's the comics. Those are their own thing. But all the shows, except for animated series... All the shows all exist within the same setting, and all the movies, even the Abrams ones. It's all the same setting. That is a feat. And, in my opinion, it all really 
got started here. Because like I said, there's two big things here. First of all, the connections back, and second of all, the connections forward. Connection to the cage and the connection to part two. We will start to see little tidbits of this in the future after this. If you're paying attention, we haven't seen any of that up until now, not counting character stuff. And I will be pointing it out as the continuity kind of slowly starts to build a little bit, and the mythos starts to be built, you know, and, and we start to establish things, and then reference establish things. But it's just a fascinating part of Star Trek history, watching this episode in motion. I really wonder if anyone involved knew what they were starting here. Of course, I could be completely off. This is simply my analysis and my presumption. I have no... You know, I, I do not have the great book of reality that says, and on this day, lo, it was stated that Star Trek began foraying into continuity. I don't, I don't have that. Which is why I'd love to hear your thoughts. Because, as always, one of the things I love most about Star Trek is everyone's different opinions and perspectives. See you next time, guys.